And as Paul said, no, it wasn't Paul, was it? Who was it? What's his name? I forgot his name. Phil, that's it. As Phil said last week. <laughs> so that's the only thing I forget, I'm doing well. <laughs> he lived in the Bronze Age, this chap Abraham. That's a few hundred years after Stonehenge was built, they reckon, by way of reference point. And you know, it's funny, there, there just is no one comparable in ancient history to this man. There's nobody else we know so much about. There's nobody else. He's three billion people across the face of the globe look back to this guy and say, he's the father of my faith. You know, he's got a massive Wikipedia page. That's what it's all about, isn't it? (laughs) For someone who lived so long ago. And it's not because he was anyone except he was someone that God got hold of. Just uh, thought you might like to see this because we last week uh, he went down to Egypt and he came back up out of Egypt. So this is Abraham's travels, just to earth it for you. He started over there in Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans. He came all the way up to the top, that's Haran at the top, and he stayed there for a while and God spoke to him again and he came down to the land of Canaan and he came through Canaan and went to Egypt because there was a famine and then he came back out of Egypt to Canaan. So this is a Bronze Age guy who's travelled 1,500 miles with all his family and all his retinue, you know, that itself is quite a story, isn't it? And if we look at the next slide, before we get to our chapter today, chapter 15, these are all the recorded words God has spoken to Abraham. That's it. You can fit them all on one slide. As far as we know from Scripture, this is what God has said. He said, leave your country and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. So he went with his dad to Haran when he was aged 75. And then God speaks to him and says, it's time to move. I'll make you into a great nation. Come, I've got another land to show you. I'm going to give you this land. And he comes down to Canaan. And God speaks to him there and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then there's the famine. He goes to Egypt. When he comes back out of Egypt, look around, God says, look around. All this land I'll give you and your offspring forever. And then we come to chapter 15. Let's read it together, shall we? Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know I'll take possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to him and he cut them in two and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. 
and a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen... A smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Amen. So, In verse 1 it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. Do not be afraid, I am your shield, your very great reward. It says, after this, after what? Well, it may refer back to chapter 14, where Abraham and his household, there's 318 trained men, and he's got some other guys with him, and they go chasing after these four local kings, or militia leaders, whatever you call them, who'd kidnapped Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, and taken him and his household and all his possessions prisoner. And so Abraham gets his household, and they go after them, and he defeats them in battle. And God now says to him, don't be afraid, Abraham, I'm your shield. Just as I've helped you in battle, Just as I've just looked after you, I will look after you. I'll continue to protect you. I'm your shield. And it says Abraham had given a tenth of all the plunder to Melchizedek, the priest. And he refused to take for himself any of the spoils that the king of Sodom was saying, go on, take this, have this. No, said Abraham, I've sworn to God that I will accept nothing from you. My allegiance, he says, is to God and no one else. And God says, you're right, Abraham. You don't need wealth from any other source. I'm the one who blesses you. I'm the one who's made you wealthy. I am your very great reward. But it seems, when God says this, it seems like he touches Abraham on a raw nerve. It seems like he touches him on his sore spot. Because Abraham doesn't reply to this with thanks or with worship. It sounds like instead he just blurts out the thing that's, that's really bugging him and it comes out as a complaint. He says, Lord, it's all very well talking about wealth and blessing me and being my great reward, but what good is it? What can you give me in terms of possessions that means anything since I'm childless? I've got no one to inherit it. When I die, it will all pass on to my chief servant. Wow. The first words that Abraham are, is recorded as saying to God, it's a complaint You've given me no children. Now let's just pause for a minute and consider Abraham's position. He's heard God's voice. How? We don't know. This time it says God spoke in a vision, but I'm sure some of the other times it must have been an audible voice probably. God speaks to him. How often? Well, it may just be these four times over a number of years. Now is that enough to to base your whole life on? He's been obedient He's left home, he's come to Canaan, he's now wealthy, but he's got no land of his own. Thirty years later, he still calls himself a stranger and an alien when he's talking to the local people. So he's gone out on a limb, on the basis of what he's heard from this new God who's butted in on his life. 
We don't know how old he is. He's between 75, that's when he left Haran, and 86, he is in the next chapter. So, I don't know how old he is. I guess he's physically fitter in all ways than a man of that age would be nowadays. At 86, he does get Hagar pregnant. Although, by the time he's 99, in chapter 17, the idea of having a son makes him laugh. It's so ridiculous. So, I'm guessing at least he's aware his biological clock is ticking. Do men have biological clocks? I think Abraham did anyway. And I'm guessing he's confused. See, God has spoken to him about his offspring more than once and about being given this land more than once. But he has no children and he has no land. So what on earth does it all mean? And, you know, Abraham is most certainly not the last person to hear God speak to him and to hear God promise things and to think, I don't get it. What does God mean? How is that possible? He is not the last person to think that, is he? But he is the first. It's God speaking in pictures. Who are my offspring? Perhaps it's not literal. And in his confusion and his frustration, out it comes his complaint. You've given me no children. And God, who knows and who understands Abraham's confusion... God who doesn't mind his bluntness. God who is pleased with his obedience thus far. God speaks again. This servant will not be your heir. Abraham, let me be very clear what I mean. A son coming from your own body will be your heir. Is that plain enough for you? I mean what I said, Abraham, about all your offspring. I'm not playing games with you, Abraham. Come outside. Come outside and see the stars. You see, it's night time. I think God spoke to him in the quiet of the night to provoke exactly this response, to bring to the surface the thing that was gnawing away at Abraham. See, daytime's busy, isn't it? Daytime, there's a lot going on. Nighttime's when you reflect on the deep things. And God speaks to him at nighttime. Come on, Abraham, come outside. Let me show you the stars. There, see them all? Count them if you can. Then the second big line. He says, that's how many your children, your descendants, your offspring, that's how many they'll be. He's already said to him, chapter 14, if you can count the dust of the earth, well, it's that many, Abraham, your descendants. Now he says the same about the stars. It's that many. As many as all the things you can't possibly count. If there'd been a beach nearby, no doubt he'd have told them to count the grains of the sand as well. It's that many, Abraham. And if Abraham had doubted before, if God really meant his own physical children, then he knows now that is what God means. Because it will start, all these offspring, it will start with a son from his own body. And now, he'd obeyed God before. He'd worshipped him before. But now it says, Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. The text hasn't said that before. He's heard him before. He's obeyed him before. But now he believes him. And I don't know anything about the Hebrew word for believe. But I do know a little bit about the Greek word. Because you see this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. And to believe the Lord. It means more than just that. Abraham believed God was telling the truth. It means more than just that Abraham believed the things he said were going to happen. It means he put his trust 
in God. He was convinced and satisfied to entrust himself and his future without reservation to this God who had spoken so wonderfully to him. And it says he believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. And the word credited, it means God calculated it, God reckoned it, he assessed it, he took it into account, this believing. He took it into account as the exact spiritual equivalent of righteousness. It generated a credit in Abraham's account consisting of righteousness. It doesn't mean he got good marks for being righteous. It doesn't mean he gets an extra righteousness star. It doesn't mean, well, you're doing pretty well on righteousness, Abraham. Still some work to do on worship and good deeds. But righteousness, you're doing well. No, no. It means from that moment on, God saw him as righteous, blameless before him. This means this man that he called out of all the people on earth, God now was not merely pleased with his obedience, but he received righteousness from God as a performance unrelated gift, solely because of his decision to believe and to trust God. Abraham was justified. He was made right with God through faith. He wasn't born again. He didn't receive the Holy Spirit, but he was saved through faith, through putting his trust in God. Despite his sin, his legal standing before God was now that of a righteous man. Take a breath. Take a pause. My son Matt went to see The Avengers. They had a new film out, Avengers Endgame. The the conclusion of the Avengers series. And that was released at midnight. They had a double bill. So you could see the one before it. And then you could have a a breather. And then you have the one after it. It's a bit like that here. You can have a breather. That that incredible theological truth. Whoa. But we're going to go on to another one. You see, there's something else coming. And you see, there's a break in the text as well. Because it continues in verse, what is it, verse 7. It says, he also said to him. But then, it was night time just a minute ago. He was looking at the stars. And now it's daytime. So, maybe this is the next day. It seems like God spoke to Abraham in two manageable chunks. He perhaps gave him time. Let that sink in. That thing he'd just been told, a son from my own body. The promise to him on a personal level. Just give him a chance to get hold of that. And then... He also said to him, here we go, part two of the promise. I am the Lord, says God, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. Now, this isn't new, as you saw earlier. It's wonderful, but it's not new. He's told Abraham this before. But, you know, I think, again, it's just like part one. God is deliberately teasing out of Abraham the question he's got deep down. The question bugging him that God now wants to decisively answer. And Abraham says, How can I know I'll take possession of it? I'm here now physically, but none of it belongs to me. It's not mine. This doesn't make sense any more than the bit about my offspring made sense. Help me understand, how could this possibly happen? And God tells him, bring three animals. No, six animals. Bring me a a heifer and a goat and a ram. No, three animals. A heifer, a goat, and a ram. And he brings them. And as God directs Abraham, cuts them in half. And he puts the halves of each carcass, forming two lines. One this side, one that side. Two lines of dead animals. He doesn't cut the birds in half. I don't know why the birds are there. But Abraham does this, and he waits. And the day wears on. 
And birds of prey come and attack the flesh of the carcasses. And Abraham shoes them off. And he waits until the sun starts to set. And then God puts him into a deep sleep. And a deep and terrible darkness comes upon him. And God speaks. God speaks in very specific detail about how it will be for Abraham and for his descendants and and how and when the promises will be fulfilled. No, for certain. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But they'll come out. They'll come back to this land. You'll go to your fathers in peace at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. He tells him in great detail how it's going to happen. And then when the sun has set fully set it's now dark suddenly there's a burning light as God appears as a fiery torch and as Abraham watches imagine absolutely dumbstruck this burning torch passes down between the two lines of the slaughtered animals and the text says on that day God made a covenant with Abraham what does that mean what's a covenant a covenant is a solemn firm, sworn, unchangeable contract or agreement between two parties. It's a commitment you make of your own free will from which there is no going back. If you break a covenant, the most severe penalties awaits you. And the word exists today as a legal term. If you've got a landlord and a tenant and they establish a lease on property, then both sides make covenants. I promise I'll do this and I'll do this and I won't do that. And you promise you'll do this and that and not the other. That's a covenant. Now God... God loves covenants. He'd already established, do you remember, a covenant with Noah. An everlasting covenant with Noah and his sons and with every living thing on the face of the earth. Never again, he says, will I destroy all life on earth by a flood. And he set the rainbow in the sky as a permanent reminder of his everlasting covenant. Now, I'm no scientist, but I bet, I bet you could make a world without rainbows. I think that would be easy. Rainbows, it just seems such an odd thing. You could have a world without rainbows. I'm sure you could. But God puts it in the sky deliberately. It's a sign of covenant. And he's kept his covenant. God made a covenant years later with Moses and with all his people. If they kept his laws and were faithful to him, he would bless them greatly. If they did not, he would punish them severely. And the people freely entered into this covenant with God. And God kept the covenant again and again. And the people broke it again and again. And God punished them again and again. But in his love, he drew them back to covenant again and again. Let's have another go. Let's try again. And you can read in Jeremiah 34 about a covenant very like this one here. When King Zedekiah and the people made a covenant that they would free all the slaves... That's something that God's required of them. That's in the law. And they said, yes, we make a covenant. We'll free all the slaves. And then they change their minds. And God says, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. Those who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You see, the penalty for breaking the covenant is that you become like the animal you've slaughtered and cut in two. What the animals are, you will become if you break the covenant. It's deadly serious. But God, you see, he loves covenants. Because he's a God who makes promises. He's a God who's always faithful, who always keeps his word. Because he's not a man. He can't lie. The words of the Lord stand firm forever. His yes is always yes. His no is always no. That's what God is like. So covenants, that's meat and drink to God. He loves it. And so here back in Genesis 15... We have this incredible picture 
these dead animals in two lines. Well, that must have been hard work, chopping them in half. All the blood, there'd been blood everywhere. And imagine all that lying out in the heat of the day as Abraham waits until sunset. And then God comes and God speaks. And it's dark until the burning torch of God's presence appears. You can imagine the only things visible, the burning torch and the animals it's lighting up. And the torch moves between the carcasses from one end to the other. Wow, what's it for? This amazing, dramatic scene. Well, God is answering Abraham. How can I know, Abraham asked. How can I be sure that what you've said to me will happen? And God's reply is, know for certain. And God makes covenant. It's a one-sided covenant. God does all the promising. God binds himself unilaterally. God is the torch who passes between the animals. And God says effectively, may I die if I break my word. I take it fully upon myself to fulfill, to do what I have promised. To your descendants I give this land. God says, Abraham, there is nothing more sure in heaven and earth than I will keep my word. And what I have promised you will come about. And Abraham, just as you believe me about your son that is to come, so I want you to be utterly confident of this too. To your descendants I give this land. Abraham, that's why I've done it this way. You'll never forget this day. What you've heard, what you've seen, you'll never forget it. It'll be burned on your memory forever. And that's how I want it to be. All of this cutting the animals in half and the blood and the thick darkness, the burning torch... It's all to underline the certainty, God says, of the covenant I make with you this day. And as if that wasn't enough, you can skip forward two chapters to Genesis 17, when God repeats and re-emphasizes his covenant. And this time there is something for Abraham to do. At the age of 99, before Isaac was born, God establishes the covenant of circumcision. Again, a covenant in blood. A permanent and indelible physical sign on the very part of Abraham's anatomy by which Isaac would very soon be conceived. A lasting reminder that Abraham would see every day. My words endure forever. I do not forget. I do not change my mind. They do not fade away over time. What I have covenanted, I will do. And Abraham and all his descendants would have that visual reminder all their lives. And we know that God did do what he had promised. Both for Abraham, the son he had promised, and for his descendants, the land he had promised. But it wasn't enough just for God to keep his word. He wanted Abraham to know that he was going to keep his word before it happened. And he did. It says in Romans 4, there's a lot in Romans 4 about this passage. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. It says he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Being fully persuaded, he's got it, he's fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And it was at least another 14 years from this day that God next spoke to Abraham as far as we know. And a further year after that before Isaac was born. But what God had said and done sustained Abraham during that time, just as God has intended, until the promise was wonderfully fulfilled. And despite a brief wobble in chapter 17, Abraham believed and waited and trusted in confidence. And our series is about the relationship that God wants. 
And God wants a relationship with us where we have total confidence in him because of his covenant with us. Now you know, don't you, the Bible's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, I'm no expert, but it seems that that word testament, you ever thought, what does it mean, the Old Testament? Well, it seems that it's a mistranslation in the Latin of the Greek and Hebrew words for covenant. The Latin translation is testamentum, and so we get the word testament. Although actually, it's not a good translation, and the word means covenant. So we could call it the old covenant and the new covenant, and there are Bibles where that's what it's called, not testament, but covenant. The old covenant being God's dealings with his people according to the covenant of the law established under Moses, which dominates most of what we know as the Old Testament. And then there's a new covenant. And I want to look at the new covenant, the covenant God has made through with us through Christ's death and resurrection. I want to look at three ways that God's encounter, Abraham's encounter with this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, three ways that can help us understand our new covenant. Firstly, this massive verse 6 in our passage, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because of his belief, his trust, his faith, God counted him as righteous in his eyes. It wasn't that his life suddenly became holy, it wasn't that he'd suddenly somehow earned it, but purely because of his faith in God. And Paul spends a whole chapter in Romans 4 on this one verse. Now Romans 4 is not a chapter to whiz through quickly, But he says in this chapter, Abraham's righteousness wasn't earned. He says it was through faith. He says it was by grace. And he says, if it's by grace, that means it's guaranteed. Hear that? Guaranteed for all of us who come after Abraham and have faith. And his conclusion to this chapter is this. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for Abraham alone, but they were written also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So listen, Paul says quite explicitly, the Abraham story is not just for him, it's for you, it's for me. If you had faith as he had faith, then God will count you as righteous, just as he counted Abraham as righteous. Not because you're perfect, not because you're even good, not because you've earned it, not because of anything you can ever do to make yourself the tiniest bit acceptable to God, except that, like Abraham, you have believed in him and put your trust in him, and that's all that's required. And Paul goes to a whole lot of trouble explaining it step by step for one reason only. He wants you to know that if you're a Christian who has trusted himself and his rotten, broken, sinful life to the mercy of God in repentance, then you are now righteous in God's eyes. It's not a righteousness of your own. It's a righteousness that you've been given as a gift by God through your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants you to get hold of that. And God wants you to know that deep down. You're righteous in my eyes. This is the new covenant, Jesus says, as he took up the cup of wine at the Last Supper. It's made in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only thing that can ever make you righteous. The blood of Jesus. He died for your sins. His blood was shed. And because you've trusted in him, you are now forgiven. Wow. You have righteousness as a gift from God. Brings us on to the second point from our passage. How can I be sure, asked Abraham. Know for certain, said God. Know for certain because it's my covenant that I make with you. 
And like Abraham's covenant, our new covenant for righteousness, for forgiveness, it's sealed in blood, the blood of God's own son. Like Abraham's covenant, there's a visual spectacle always to keep in front of your eyes. The son of God nailed to a cross, hanging there to die. There's a visual reminder of that unforgettable event that became part of our lives when we turned to Christ. There's a visual reminder in the bread and wine that we'll shortly be handling. You touch that, you see it, it reminds you, yes, Christ died. He died for me. I'm forgiven. And covenant says it's forever. Like Abraham's covenant, it's an everlasting covenant, just as we read about Abraham. Know for certain that the blood of Christ is effective in your life forever to cleanse you from all sin. That's the deal. That's God's covenant promise. And he cannot and he will not change his mind. It's covenant. So Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. Having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. No place for a guilty conscience. He wants you to have the full assurance of faith. God wants you to have confidence in your right standing before him, just as he wanted Abraham to be confident. God wants you to have the full assurance of a faith that brings righteousness. It's a simple equation. Faith equals righteousness. So if we put our trust in the blood of Christ, we can have full assurance of our right standing before him, the righteousness he's credited to us. And in that Romans 4 chapter I've mentioned, Paul quotes Psalm 32, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And that's you and that's me because of the new covenant in Christ's blood. He will never count your sins against you. So be fully assured, God says, be confident to enter and draw near to me. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ. Back to Hebrews 10. The writer says that the sacrifices of the old covenant could never take away sin. And that's why they had to be offered again and again, day after day. But when this priest, that's Jesus, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down, job done, because by one sacrifice, hear this, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now that's you and me. We are still being made holy. The process of sanctification is going on in our lives. It'll never be complete until we meet Jesus in glory. But despite that, he's already made us perfect forever. You're already clean, Jesus said to the disciples. You've had a bath. You're already clean. He says that to you. You're already clean. Yeah, you have to keep your feet clean. You have to wash them. Your feet get mucky, don't they? All the gross of this, this world that we mess about in and the dirt we... You have to keep your feet clean. But, but not your whole body is clean already and it's never going to be dirty again because I have cleaned you. You're mine and you're clean. Do you get it, Christian? He wants you to know for certain. And the third point from our passage... Abraham believed the Lord. He put his full trust in God. And we receive all the blessings of the new covenant when we believe and when we put our full trust in God. 
Now, I read one commentary that says at this point, God's reliability will never let anyone down. But those who know the way of faith will nevertheless find God leading us into ever new circumstances in which to trust him. And if you've been a Christian more than about five minutes, you'll know that's true. Once we put our trust in God and in this new covenant, we'll find he then deliberately leads us into situations where we have to trust him and where we prove his faithfulness. Hooray! And then we have to trust him again. And, you know, we will never graduate out of this this repeated dynamic where we have to trust our covenant-keeping God and cling on to him and trust his word. And we find he really is faithful after all. And then there's a new situation comes up. We have to trust him again. We'll never get out of that. I'd like you to watch 30 seconds of a video, which is about 50 years old, if we can play this. That's little old me, age seven or eight. As you can see, I can't swim very well. And that's my dad. And this is a place we used to go to now and again. And that's uh, myself and my two brothers. I don't know how big that pool is. Maybe, I don't know, 20 meters across. The reason I show you that, I remember there was one time in that pool, it might even have been that same day, for some reason I, it, I was going to swim across that pool, which was obviously a challenge to me, perhaps I'd never done it before, but I don't know how it happened, maybe dad encouraged me, I don't know, but I was going to swim across it. And what I do remember is my anxiety. And I remember asking dad at least twice, you will save me if I can't do it. You will save me, promise, promise you will. Yes, yes, I'll be right beside you, don't worry. Well, I remember I got about two thirds of the way across and I called for help. I can't do it, I can't do it, help. But dad didn't step in. You're okay, keep going. And because he didn't grab me, I had no choice. I kept going and I did reach the other side. But I remember two things. I remember that even when I was calling out for help, I knew I could do it really, but I just wanted to be rescued. Instead, that was more comfortable somehow. And I remember being cross when I got to the other side. I was cross. I said, you said you'd save me. You didn't, and you promised. But of course, the thing is, I wasn't really in trouble. I could do it, and Dad knew I could do it. He was there if I did need rescuing, but he knew I didn't. And I guess I probably wasn't really very mentally tough, I suppose we'd say. Maybe Dad wanted to stretch me for my own good, to to help me achieve something that I wasn't sure I could do. I don't know. Why do I share this? Well, just because I feel God has put it on my heart for this morning, that's all. I have no idea what situations you are facing. I do not know where you're being tested or where you're being stretched beyond what you think you can cope with. I don't know where you're scared. I don't know where actually you might really genuinely need saving. I don't know what God is doing in your situation and I wouldn't pretend to know why. But I do know this, that your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is right there in the pool with you. He's not gone off. He's not even sitting on the side. He's there in the pool with you. Maybe you think you're about to sink. Maybe you don't feel safe. 
But maybe he knows, actually, you are safe. You can do it with his help. Hang in there. Maybe he's about to step in and grab you before you really do sink. Or maybe he's just right alongside, encouraging you all the way. Come on, son. Keep going. You can do it. I don't know. But I do know this. Your dad is in the pool with you. You are not alone. With him, you are safe, whatever it feels like. As we read in Hebrews 13, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Because he's the God who keeps covenant with his people forever. When they put their trust in him, as Abraham did, and as he calls us to do too. Do not be afraid, he says to us. I am your shield, your very great reward. We're going to take communion now. Uh, The prayer ministry team, I believe, are going to come up and serve communion. But as we do that, I'd just encourage you just to remember, this isn't just a thing we do. This is a God-given reminder. You're in covenant with your God. There's a bit in Exodus. It says, Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the bulls that had been sacrificed. And Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. I'd never noticed before, but these are the words that Jesus picks up when he takes up the cup. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Effective for you once and for all. Once for all eternity. Once your sins were scarlet, now they're white as snow. You've been given righteousness. As you take communion, know for certain you've been given a righteousness from God that is not your own. Know for certain. Know for certain. God sees you as clean. And whatever you're facing in life today, you have a covenant God who is alongside you. And he will be faithful. And as you take communion, if you're struggling with that, Lord, again, I place my trust in you, my covenant-keeping God. I trust you. There's no one else. I cling on to you with all I am. Please don't let me sink. Thank you that you're here with me in the pool. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your incredible love that you should care for the likes of us at all. Father, we thank you like Abraham, you've sought us out individually. You've called to us. We've heard your voice. And we thank you that we have become the inheritors of promises too wonderful to tell. And Lord, we declare today together, Lord, in your sight, by your grace, by your mercy, through the blood of Christ, We're righteous before you and we can come with confidence. Father, that's amazing and we know we don't deserve it, but we thank you that it's true. We dare to believe it, to affirm it, that it's true. You welcome us to your table today. And Father, we thank you 
that you are the God who died for us. And if you did that, you're not going to deny us anything. You're never going to let us go. You're never going to forsake us. You've done that for us. You're with us through to the end. So, Lord, please help us in our weakness. Please strengthen us today where we're in need and where we struggle. But, Father, as we take communion, we pray in Jesus' name, you would minister the truth of your covenant love to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just come forward and take communion. The worship band will play.